Well, good morning. For those I haven't met, um, I may have some new people here. My name is Ryan Evans. I'm the uh, secondary principal and headmaster at Providence Classical Christian School. And my wife, Maylie, and I have three children, 24, 21, and 18. Uh, and last night, we talked about Hallmark ornaments. Uh, Tyler said I collect cereal boxes. I do collect Hallmark ornaments as well, but I don't collect the tawdry ones. I collect the, like the Scooby-Doo and the, um, you know, the sports ones. So those, those aren't quite as tacky. A little bit about me. So uh, we talked about worldview development yesterday, and I want to um, specifically talk about uh, child raising and strategies, principles, and methods. When uh, I was first teaching sixth grade, Maylie and I were newly married, and I was asked to join a Bible study group with another teacher and talk about parenting strategies. I think we were, what, 24 at the time and didn't have kids, taught one year. And I don't know what I said, but I can't imagine it was very profound. Um, there is a sense that you know, having experience does uh, help. So can a person without kids give parenting advice? Probably, but, but probably best to wait uh, until you have a little bit more experience. So tw that was 27 years ago. Uh, my ability to provide a little bit of guidance, I hope, uh, gives me a little bit more credibility at this point. 27 years of marriage and, and 27 years of uh, teaching and administering in uh, Christian schools. So a brief outline for this talk. We'll talk about, um, start with suppos uh, presuppositions about parenting. We'll talk about biblical training, look at some scripture verses, and then talk about principles and talk about some methods. So I don't want to be overly prescriptive, but... Um, We'll end with some suggestions and, and some effective practices and just make for really good discussion. And, and as Tyler said, if you've got questions, uh, make sure you write those on those cards. I want to start with a quote from a local educator, a guy named Christian Overman. Uh, Christian Overman has written a book uh, about uh, the assumptions that affect our lives more related to education. He's also done a lot of training in schools about how to integrate, purposely integrate worldview into the classroom. And he says this, he's, he talks about uh, parenting as well. He says, when it comes to educating children, the prep work cannot be minimized or underestimated. Preparing children for learning includes training them in such basic skills as listening when an adult is speaking, honoring one giving instruction, prompt obedience, respect for others, and self-control. These are not qualities children are born with. Yet, they are foundational learning skills which can and should be operative in, nor uh, in normal children properly trained at home prior to formal education. So let's start with some presuppositions. These are just basic things that I think we can agree on. First of all, and these are uh, critical, I think, in raising um, biblically-oriented kids. First of all is acknowledging that the Bible is God's word. Uh, we all need a plumb line, something that provides this final guidance for us, a source of objective truth. God's word does that. We need to let Scripture interpret Scripture and settle ourselves on the fact that God's word uh, says it, then we believe it. If we choose to follow only certain areas and not others, then we've made ourselves the arbiter of truth, not God. And that never goes well. Uh, number two, the Bible provides wisdom and promises for parents. Having acknowledged that the Bible is God's word, we need to acknowledge that it offers principles and guidance for us to raise our kids uh, in the Lord. Um, we see this throughout the scriptures. I'm just going to name three. We could spend a lot of time on this, but I'm just going to name three here. Proverbs 22.6, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. There's a promise there. Deuteronomy 6.6-7, 6 
These words which I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Deuteronomy 6 is a wonderful apology for, again, why we need homeschool and Christian schooling. Um, if that's God's command in Deuteronomy 6, uh, a pagan education is not going to get us there. Proverbs 22:15. foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of correction will drive it far from him. We'll talk about uh, spanking corporal punishment here today. Um, the mystery of the covenant says that God saves. He uses us as instruments in his hands. There are faithful ways to parent, unfaithful ways to parent. It's the nature of God's covenant that a good tree bears fruit, that following his precepts uh, leads to life. I fear that um, many churches, that message is either neglected or perhaps even compromised for a variety of reasons, uh, but scriptural principles don't change. I think we need to remember this too. Joel Beakey, in a, a great book about parenting, writes this. He says, the tension remains between God's sovereignty and our responsibility as it comes to parenting. As parents, we are responsible for our children and must pray for their salvation, but God is sovereign and has the right to cast our children away. That might be a little controversial even in our circles. He says we do not deserve the salvation of our children. That's true. We don't deserve it. So there's a mystery there in that covenant. Doug Wilson writes, we must always remember that discipline is not a substitute for the gospel. Properly understood and applied, godly discipline is a God-ordained preparation for a right understanding of the gospel. So the gospel has to be infused in all we do. It's not simply follow this method and look what you get. Um, God is still sovereign and we need the good news. Uh, number three, uh, three, the third uh, presupposition, children are a blessing from God. God grants parents children as a rich blessing from him. Psalm 127 says that children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies at the gate. We see here that children are a blessing, whether they're six months old, two years old, 13 years old. They're a gift from God. Even those eighth grade girls are a gift from God. Sorry if you're an eighth grade girl. We've raised one. Um, we need to remember that during those tough times when we feel that we have failed as parents, I was uh, just talking with someone recently, um, and he and his wife had a, have a really challenging daughter, requires a ton of work, and he said, you know, I, I'm just wondering what we're doing wrong. And he just needed to be reminded, children are a blessing, and even in the midst of trials, God's promises are true. Keep up what you're doing. Number four, children are born sinful. Any non-delusional parent understands that children are not born righteous. We generally don't need to teach our kids to whine or to complain. Nor do we need to teach them to be selfish. They're conceived in sin. And knowing and remember that should point us to that constant training. It should convict us to that um, idea of this constant correction, loving and firm correction. John MacArthur writes, our children are not innocent when they come into the world, except in the sense that they are naive and inexperienced. All the potential for sin of every kind is already present in their hearts in seed form. A proclivity towards sin drives their hearts, minds, and wills. They have no native potential for true holiness or God-pleasing righteousness. They're totally depraved already, just waiting for that depravity to express oneself. 
I know that sounds a little depressing, but if you've, if, but if you've brought kids into the world, you see that. Uh, they're a blessing, and they also need uh, a lot of work. Um, although they have some knowledge of good in their hearts, Romans 2, they will and cannot do the good because they love evil, Jeremiah 17 and John 3, 19. Um, so our children are born sinful, and that requires something of us. And number five, parenting is hard work, but God's grace is sufficient. I titled this talk, Parenting is Hard Until You Have Children. It is kind of easy before you have kids to think, hey, it can't be that hard. And we all have that kind of that inborn self-righteousness. I know that was in me to look at other families and think, oh, come on, just do a couple things and you can, you can fix that. Well, it's not quite as easy. You need to have kids to kind of experience uh, the challenges of that. So it's not for the faint of heart. It's hard. It's constant. Discipline is rarely convenient. I think many times we fail to discipline because we're tired we're unwilling to deal with problems. It leads to shortcuts, and that, again, leads to patterns, which leads to norms and routines that we get into, and quite frankly, those are uh, damaging to our kids. One of the best books on parenting that we found as a school, we recommend this, and, and we as parents found it uh, really helpful, is Ted Tripp's Shepherding a Child's Heart. If you haven't read that, uh, that's a good one to start with, so I'll refer it several times in the talk. Ted Tripp writes, God has called you to a more profound task than being only a care provider. Shepherd your child in God's behalf. The task God has given you is not one that can be conveniently scheduled. It is a pervasive task. Training and shepherding are going on whenever you are with your children, whether walking, talking, resting. You must be involved in helping your child understand life, himself, and his need from a biblical perspective. That's Ted Tripp. Uh, mainly, I, one of the things interesting we've noticed um, as we're driving around, we see um, parents with... Um, maybe the kids in the stroller, and they've got their phones, and they're holding their phones. And it's a small little thing, and I'm thinking, what a wasted opportunity to be talking with your kids, pointing out the flowers, the trees, and that kind of thing. But, but parents are preoccupied. Instead of that ongoing, constant dialogue with these little ones, they're distracted. And sadly, they're missing out on that wonderful bonding time. It's just a small thing. Uh, one last point. We don't always see amazing results at every stage of life with our children. It might take years for a child to um, demonstrate, you know, fruits of faith or to even say I love you or to develop uh, the pattern of kindness that you've spent years trying to inculcate. How many years did Augustine's mother pray for him? Monica prayed daily, daily to, uh, for God to save him, and her prayers were answered. It took longer than maybe she had wanted. So in order to discipline and uh, disciple our children, we must begin with the end in mind. That's not a new idea. This starting with what is our end goal? As one author says, start with why. Why are we doing what we're doing? Are we simply trying to get our children to act correctly? No. As Ted Tripp says, some succumb to the pressure to raise well-behaved kids. We help them develop poise, we teach them to converse, we want children who possess social graces, etc. But having well-behaved children is not a worthy goal. It's a great secondary benefit of biblical child raising, but an unworthy goal in itself. So why is it hard? Child raising is hard. Why is it? I'm going to suggest several reasons um, here at the beginning of our talk um, why we maybe fall into uh, the trap of raising children that may not be as productive. So some influences, uh, how we were raised. We talked about this yesterday, but many of us were blessed by faithful parents. None of us were blessed by perfect parents. 
And so it can be helpful if we're raised by really faithful, God-oriented parents. It's often tainted with unhelpful assumptions. Uh, we romanticize our own history sometimes, uh, and even maybe misplaced priorities or weak theology. So we need to examine how we were trained, use the God-centered strategies, cast off those that maybe weren't effective. But there's a tendency to go back and, and look at our parents. We love our parents, but it's not always that our parents did that perfectly. Uh, number two, an overreaction to the way we were parented. I've spoken a lot of parents who have these faulty strategies that we've discussed. They implement certain things, and it's just because that's the way they've always done it. Talk to parents who don't spank because of a reaction to um, misguided spanking approach when they were young. Well, that's not a good reason to cast that out. It's a good reason to examine how to do it rightly, but it's not a good reason to throw that out. Uh, the quickest and easy way to get things done. Uh, it's an easy trap to fall into. I kind of might, you might call this the Walmart parenting plan. If you've ever been to Walmart, um, we, you don't always see faithful parenting uh, at Walmart. Uh, I, don't, I can't say these are all things I've actually heard, but, um, you know, this thing of, you know, you ask for one more thing, you're not going to get anything. You know, that kind of approach. That, that really doesn't accomplish a whole lot from a parenting perspective. Uh, or I'm counting to five. You get that counting to five, and this becomes a challenging mathematical problem because they get to two and three and four, and then it's four and a half, and four and three-fourths, and it's like a four and seven-eighths, and four and seventeen-eighteenths. And you, you hear this, you know, just get to five already. Uh, you know, do that one more time and you're getting a swat. Or you, you see that, you know, the, the, the parent just, you know, grab the, the cereal box or the flip-flop and smack a kid in the back. Um, I've seen that. We've seen that. Or just yelling as loud as possible. So uh, the quickest and easy way to get things done is never effective. Uh, what we find irritating or disruptive, sometimes we just get irritated with our kids. And so we react. We're busy people. Maybe we haven't prioritized the importance, and so we just kind of wait till we reach that irritation level, and then we discipline. Uh, and it confuses our kids, and it usually results in angry, uh, confused kids. Uh, what we've seen other people do, whether right or wrong, we might just follow what other people do. Uh, hopefully, we're choosing faithful parents to follow, and that's the, the role of a, a great church. We were so blessed when our kids were young, to see so many older families in our church community that just were raising faithful kids. And we learned a lot from that. We asked a lot of questions and learned a lot. Um, rarely this is, a, is a, a good rationale for just doing what we've always done, but it's easy to fall into that trap. Uh, perhaps we've never thought it through. Perhaps we don't want to have uh, discussions. I've seen many good Christian parents who just haven't given a whole lot of thought. So the fact that you're here obviously means that you're concerned about that and you're, you're interested in this. So we can all admit to some of these things at some level. Uh, to dig a deep uh, bit further, I want to look at some types of parenting styles that I have um, seen over the years, maybe even fallen into a little bit myself. Um, but these are things to be avoided. Uh, and should never characterize our parenting. There's overlap in these styles, but let's talk about several. So types of parents, and maybe think about, do you maybe lean toward one of these? Uh, the first type of parent, the negotiator, calling it the negotiator. This parent often uses cajoling and bartering to get their child to do what they want. Perhaps it's bribes, maybe it's offering more iPad time, TV time, something like that, uh, if they will just eat the dinner. 
Often the negotiator has already given up his or her authority. The child often physically displays signs of victory. I can often see it in kids' eyes. I've actually, um, Alice Niss, our grammar principal, and I, we interview lots of families coming through the school, and I can see it in little kids. It's almost kind of creepy. They look at Alice or they look at me, and they almost are communicating, what are you going to do about it? Because I've got my parent wrapped around my finger. They've manipulated the parent. They've, they've gotten into this negotiating style. I recall a mom who wanted her son in Christian education, but the boy wanted to be in public school. And uh, this was a young, kind of a younger middle school. And so he, you know, he wanted more classes, more sports, and this kind of thing. Well, the parent had already given up her authority. And so she, what she did is she said, I'll give you 100 bucks a week to stay at the Christian school. I thought, that's a pretty good deal. Do you have that one for me? I, you know, I said, take it, take it. Uh, he didn't. Wasn't worth it to him. Ended up in public school. So there are times rewards might be good, right, when you're potty training or something and you give an M&M or something if they remember. I mean, I'm not against rewards, but that kind of thing, you've just kind of given the farm away and you've lost all your authority. So the, uh, negotiating with your kids is not a good uh, model good paradigm. Uh, second, the tyrant. This parent tends to resort to yelling, stare downs, um, sort of that, that imposition that puts the kids on edge all the time. The end result is a lack of joy in the home, adherence to rules with the parents around normally ends up in lawlessness once the child is out on his own. The children, maybe even the spouse, walk around on eggshells waiting for the next outburst uh, the fear tends to be the main mode of discipline. It's sort of this Machiavellian approach to parenting. And while this can cross gender boundaries, dads are more susceptible to that. Um, as an example, many years ago, when the kids were really little, we had a guest over, and one of the kids spilled the milk at the dinner table. It happens. And uh, pretty sure it was our daughter uh, who, who was more prone to that. Um, and she got more distraught than we did. It's like, it's going to be fine. We had to calm her down. We'll get the paper towels. We'll take care of it. No big deal. And this guy looked at us, and, and he said, that was amazing. And he said, what was amazing? He said, well, just the way you handled that. He said, when I, was, when I was a kid, if that happened, dinner was over, dad would have flown off the handle. Sad. Sad that you can allow something like that to sort of dictate your approach as a parent. So the tyrant, bad model. Uh, the abdicator, the abdicator, what we might call the ostrich, it's a bit of a head in the sand issue. Someone who uh, ignores just says, hey, this is going to go away, I won't deal with it. If we ignore it, um, I won't have to, have to discipline. We ignore the roll of the eyes, the failure to obey, the slight disrespect, we let it go. Why? Because we don't feel like dealing with it. We pretend maybe it isn't happening. Often we're too tired to deal with it. After all, who loves conflict? No one loves conflict. Dads, again, tend to be good at this because mom is the one at home with the kids. She spends most of the time there. Uh, she has more experience. She can handle it. Dads kind of have a tendency to get a little focused. We can kind of compartmentalize a little bit more. So dads, I think, are more tempted to abdicate than moms. Uh, I can remember distinctly having a conversation with a guy at church, and we were in a good theological discussion, and meanwhile, his kids were literally in a fight. They were fighting. And I, you could hear them. Other people could hear them. 
and he was so zoned in on this conversation, I finally had to say, I won't use his real name, but I said, uh, Stan, I think, you know, the boys could use some help over here. And uh, you know, even then, I kind of shook him from his, uh, from his stupor a little bit. It's hard for him to stop the conversation and actually attend to his task. So um, that, was, that was symptomatic of him. I considered him a friend, but it was symptomatic of him um, as an abdicator. And uh, his wife ended up bearing a lot of the burden in the marriage, uh, sadly ended up failing. I'm not saying that was the reason for it, but that was a, uh, one of the symptoms. Uh, another, uh, another pattern might be the advisor. We're not really in charge of our kids. We're merely here to give advice, recommend, give suggestions, give options. So to be clear, I think it's good to give uh, kids choices, give them options. Uh, there's a parenting program called Love and Logic that some of you may be familiar with. And one of the, uh, one of the important tenets is give choices when possible. It's a, it's a great model, actually. Uh, but you have to be careful about your choices. For example... You might say to your kid, you, know, you can give some freedom and you give some choice within boundaries, it can be really helpful. You might say, do you, okay, it's time for bed, do you want to brush your teeth first or do you want to read a book first, right? Both choices are within sort of a range of, of uh, what you deem appropriate. Um, you're not going to say something like, do you feel like going to the library or would you rather play video games all day, right? Those aren't choices that you're going to give. Um, but the advisor... Uh, goes beyond that and allows for a little bit too much freedom and kind of lets, the, lets the, the young person make too many choices. Um, Ted Tripp says this, few parents are willing to say, I have prepared oatmeal for your breakfast. It's a good nutrition, nutritious food. I want you to eat it. Maybe some other morning we'll have something you like better. Many are saying, what would you like for breakfast? You don't want the oatmeal I've prepared? Would you like something else? Sounds very nice and enlightened, but what is really happening? The child is learning that he is the decision maker. The parent only suggests options. I had that conversation with a parent um, because I said, well, how, how, are, how are your dinner table conversations going? And the parent said, well, we don't eat dinner together. I said, why not? I said, well, he won't come to the table. Need some work. We had a long conversation about that. I actually read him that section from Ted Tripp, and he says exactly what's happening. And they were able to kind of redo some things and rethink it. Uh, another parenting style, the pacifier. This is the parent who feels that discipline is too harsh. We don't want a discipline. We want, we want grace because grace doesn't punish, is the thinking. Nice becomes a vice. A child learns early that he or she can get away with just about anything because the parent avoids confrontation and has a hard time saying no. Spanking is mean and lacking in grace. Ironic, right? Because spanking is grace to your child. While abdication is part of the problem, rather than being grounded in inertia, it's born out of a desire to be friendly and nice all the time. So, uh, my kids are too cute, aren't they great? Want everyone to be happy. The ir irony here is that the commitment seems to be rooted in friendliness, but it really only breeds children who lack discipline, um, who have forsaken a commitment to diligence, lack the ability to persevere through trials. Many years ago, a lot, long time ago, there was a family whose daughter was really struggling, plenty sharp, um, pretty smart actually, and was below a two-point GPA, which is like, you know, D, those are D grades. Um, super lazy, poor work habits. I met with the parents. Parents were kind, they were supportive, they were loving, uh, unwaveringly kind, I should say. But they completely, I realized, completely lacked exercise over the daughter and didn't see the consequences of their failure, 
they wanted everything to kind of try to be as smooth as possible and didn't really want to lay anything on thick. And uh, that did not end well. And it was true of all the, uh, the kids in that family, nice, kind people. Uh, but the pacifier is not a good model. Uh, the excuser, this is a parent who um, has expectations that are just far too low. Perhaps they think their children are unusually difficult. They feel everyone else's children are naturally compliant. Doesn't happen. Maybe they haven't thought through the implications of training and work necessary for effective parenting. For whatever reason, they've developed low expectations and they no longer believe their kids are even capable of obedience. Perhaps they've given up. Um, had a conversation with a, a mom once whose son was really struggling with compliance and we, we got to the conversation I, you know, at home and homework and tried to figure out why isn't the homework getting done. And I said, well, what happens at home when it's time for homework? Well, he gets distracted. He has a hard time concentrating. There's too many things going on. So if you found a quiet place for him to do the homework. Um, well, yeah, I've sent him to his room. Okay, well, great. Okay, can he go to his room? Can you, you know, can you, what happens when you send him to his room to do his homework? Well, he climbs out the window. Literally, that was the answer. And, you know, there are times when you just don't know how to respond to somebody. That was one of those. I don't know how to respond to that. Um, and the last one, the unbeliever. Some parents may fall into unbelief. They just don't believe it's possible. They don't believe, maybe they don't believe it's important enough for their kids to be obedient. After all, a kid is about having fun, right? Doesn't matter if they try to inhale spaghetti up their nose at the dinner table. Who cares? Every boy hits his sister, right? That happens. Not a big deal. Maybe that unbelief is rooted in failed attempts or a parent just doesn't believe it's possible. Uh, maybe they've been given, this is a real diagnosis, if you may have heard of it, it's called oppositional and defiance disorder. That's, a, that's an actual psychological diagnosis. Oppositional and defiance disorder. So the parents live with this false notion, maybe, uh, maybe they've had that diagnosis. I mean, the bottom line is, don't we all have that at some level? Oppositional and defiance disorder, it's called sin. Yeah, thank you, Brett. It is. Uh, of course, that's a foolish notion. It contradicts the Bible's promises. Um, reminded of being at a friend's home. We were preparing a, a meal, standing in the kitchen, and I noticed the dog was smelling the food, but the dog refused to come into the kitchen. And uh, you could tell the dog wanted to. And I said, well, how'd you manage that? What's the deal with the dog? So we trained her. Now, if a family can train the dog to not come into the kitchen when the dog's really only goal in life is to get food, I think that communicates that parents have the ability to train thinking kids. So these are approaches we should avoid. Uh, the good news is it's never too late to redirect our approach. If you've fallen into uh, patterns that maybe aren't very effective, uh, it's never too late to kind of redirect some um, effective principles that we can talk about. Um, here are some strategies and just some principles that, um, that I think will be helpful. First of all, the standard, your standard is prompt and cheerful obedience. Uh, it's no shock, something all parents should welcome. Doug Wilson says this, the standard, if it's to have any meaning at all, must be enforced whenever there is a violation of the standard. Now, the thing that keeps many parents from enforcing such a standard is really their unbelief. They do not believe that discipline will really affect how the kids act around the house. So we can go back to those parenting styles that we just outlined that fall into that. 
Uh, consistency is key, and parents need to work in tandem to ensure they're uniform in enforcing those expectations of obedience. Do you expect obedience the first time? When you ask them to do something, how do you respond when they fail to do it? What is the plan? Uh, the second principle is something we use at the school all the time. We, 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 we found this in a book, and it's great because it, it works as a school. It works uh, for parents. What we permit, we promote. I love that phrase. What we permit, we promote. So that was one of the huge takeaways from the book. It's a great reminder that whatever we allow, whatever we tolerate, whatever we permit, we're basically subsidizing. We're saying continue to do that. Well, so that's what we communicate to our kids. Um, here's an example. Let's say you ask your child to put the crayons away. Time to set the table for dinner. She looks at you and continues coloring. You have a choice at that point. What do you do? You have a decision to make. If you permit the disobedience, you're promoting to your child that what you say isn't really what you mean and that she has your permission to disobey. It's a small little thing, but those added up over time lead to just hearts of disobedience. So a lot of t teaching opportunities there. Uh, another important principle, use the rod. As mentioned earlier, there are various reasons children choose not to spank. We talked about that. But the Bible's pretty clear. Proverbs 13, 24, whoever spares the rod and, and hates his son. But he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Uh, the rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother, Proverbs 29. And then, of course, Hebrews 12 is just a promise for all moments, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Discipline's a good thing. It's loving. It's gracious to our kids. Uh, Ted Tripp says this, the rod is apparent in faith toward God and faithfulness toward his or her children, undertaking the responsibility of careful, timely, measured, and controlled use of physical punishment to underscore the importance of obeying God and rescuing the child from continuing in his foolishness until death. Uh, what about grounding? Some people use that, um, the, the idea of grounding. Uh, Tripp again says, grounding is not corrective, simply punitive. It does not address the issues of the heart that were reflected in the child's wrong behavior. It simply punishes for a specific period of time. Yes, it's easy. Grounding is easy. Uh, but what Tripp says is key. It doesn't require ongoing interaction. It does not require ongoing discussion. It does not assess what goes on inside the child and does not require patient instruction. Um, so grounding uh, is probably not a great approach. Uh, Jim Wilson talks about a concept called saturation love that many have found really useful. It's, it comes in his book, How to Be Free from Bitterness. Um, it's just a book of, of essays that are, are really um, helpful. But it's exactly what it sounds. A full-fledged investment in your children where love is undivided attention in quality time with the kids. It's a constant show of affection, unconditional love and favor that communicates to our children that we do love them. So when you have saturation love, it makes things like the rod that much easier because your kid, you've already poured all that investment into our kids. Uh, when the, so when the spanking comes, they know it's out of love. They don't have, uh, they don't question that. So saturation love does not equate to sort of this anything goes mentality. Uh, rather, it's a, to complement a God-focused approach to discipline that holds children accountable. So high expectations for behavior are always compatible with warmth and love. I think sometimes we believe that 
in order to discipline our kids, we need to be dour and scowling if, or else we're not holding to biblical discipline. It doesn't need to be that way. Loving discipline can be executed without harshness, without raising our voice. Serious, yes, but hopeful because we serve a great God. So saturate our children with love and support. Um, discipline is much easier. Uh, and the restoration of fellowship is sweet. Another important concept, let consequences teach. Natural consequences are a wonderful motivator for our kids. They learn from natural consequences. Sometimes natural consequences are harder for parents than the kids. Uh, But that doesn't mean they're not a good thing. I can remember when our uh, oldest was in second grade, we tried Cub Scouts. And, you know, part of this whole failed approach of Cub Scouts, I'm giving away the end here, but... Uh, I didn't do scouts. I wasn't super excited about scouts, but he wanted to try it. So, um, so we did. We tried it. We thought, we'll commit to this for a year. And I don't know how many people have done scouts, but you have to, I don't even, I don't remember a ton about this, but you have to earn those badges. Is that right? You earn badges in scouts. But, you know, in order to earn a badge, you got to do something. And my son wasn't willing to do anything. And I said, son, if you don't do the work, you're not going to get the badges. And it's going to come time. You're, gonna get, you know, you're not going to get called up like the other guys are called up. And so sure enough, comes time for uh, this type of assembly. And every kid in this little troop was called up, except my son. Now, it would have been really easy for me to feel sorry for him and to take him out to ice cream and say, you know, you did your best. The reality, he didn't do his best. He did nothing. So I had to watch him, and it was kind of painful, quite honestly. It was kind of painful for me as a parent. What parent likes to see your, you know, your kids saddened by that? Um, but it was a natural consequence. I think it taught him something. If you don't do the work, you don't get the reward. And so I didn't, I didn't have to beat it into him. We had a good conversation, and wow, that, that hurt, didn't it? That was kind of painful. Why did that happen? We can, we can dialogue about that. But those had an effect. Consequences are wonderful teachers for our kids. It's the way the world works. I remember hearing another school administrator talking about how hard it was to get his high school daughter to show up on time for school. Just punctuality, basic punctuality. It was it become a thorn in his side. But then she got a job at the mall and was told on day one, she was told, oh, by the way, first time you're late, you're fired. That was the message she got. And funny thing happened she started showing up to school on time as well. She, had, she started to learn that, oh, maybe punctuality actually is important. Again, logical consequences uh, are helpful for our kids. Uh, another principle, keep tar- tight guardrails when kids are young, loosen them over time. Young children need those bumpers, lots of guidance and, and dictation. The more structure they have, the better. Part of training is keeping that sandbox small, so to speak. They can learn the simple things, and then you expand that as they get older. Uh, Doug Wilson writes, when, young, when other young children are cruising the neighborhood without restraint, your children should be at home. Camp Pendleton. And 10 years later, when the kids in the neighborhood are all getting grounded, yours should be finally getting airborne. Love that phrase. So tight reins when they're young. If you've trained them in maturity, they can have more responsibility to handle that well as they're older. Sometimes parents are tempted to get that backwards starting with loose rules when the children are young because they're just little and it doesn't really matter that much, and then they try to tighten when they're older, and that's, that's just not the right approach. Young children are moldable more so than, than older teens. Best time to mold clay is when it's soft. 
And the more it hardens, the more challenging it is to mold into shape. Uh, another principle, commit time for discipline. Discipline is rarely convenient. In fact, it feels like particularly when kids are little, those discipline situations happen to come when it's most inconvenient. How many, how many of us have had to stop the shopping trip, put the freezer goods away, go back in the car, discipline the kid, go back to the shopping cart, find the cart, you know, sometimes multiple times in the same trip, you know, what should be 20 minutes turns into a two-hour shopping trip. But those are, you know, it's inconvenient, but it's important. Um, those conversations with our kids are super helpful. Um, ask questions, get into dialogue. Uh, what were you thinking when you hit your brother? Uh, what did your brother do that made you so mad that you tore his paper up? Have a conversation. Let the student speak, or the child in this case speak. Uh, can you help me understand why you chose to obey mom? What were you thinking when you did that? Uh, in what other way could you have responded? What might you do next time in the same situation? It's probably going to come up. Uh, what biblical principles? What would God say to do about this? And then I love this question. Uh, it's one I oftentimes ask as an administrator, and I'll just let kids sit for a long time and figure it out. What are you going to do now? It's a great question for kids. What do you plan on doing right now? Uh, how can you respond to this? And don't give the answer. Let the child come up with it. And that it causes great dialogue. You can help if needed, you know, because oftentimes the answer is, I don't know. Well, okay, keep thinking. We've got time. You want some ideas? You can maybe give some suggestions. You want to know some suggestions of what other people have done in your situation? I can throw out some suggestions. Uh, another principle, embrace headship and a team approach. Our, our, our age tends to despise words like hierarchy and submission. They're biblical words. So biblical and loving headship in marriage is central to successful, well-disciplined, and healthy kids. Uh, again, Doug Wilson writes, in our egalitarian world, submission is always seen as a form of losing or being inferior in some way. But we call, into the, we call this error because we are no longer thinking in a Trinitarian fashion. Submission is seen as entailing inferiority because we do not understand the deity of Christ and his full submission to the Father. It's modeled for us in the Trinity. So loving servant-oriented headship creates love, security for parents and for children. It means that dad and mom work together always as a team. Children will sniff out disagreement between mom and dad like a bloodhound. They just have this, this amazing ability to do that. So parents must present a united front. Decide on plans ahead of time. What mom says is supported by dad. What dad says is supported by mom. There are no exceptions to that. Question the culture and question the cool. It's dangerous to have kids who are cool. Why is that? Well, because normally, not always, but normally it means they're acting or speaking in a way that attempts to garner attention for the wrong reasons. Cool tends to mean some level of cultural capitulation, at least that's been my experience. Type of compromise in ways that others find attractive for the wrong reasons. So we can talk a lot more about that, but uh, I worry when kids are deemed to be extremely popular or the cool kid. If they're cool and popular because they're faithful, they work hard, they call everyone to high standards, that's great. That's generally not how it works. So nothing wrong with things like wearing stylish clothes, 
but we ought not to dress our kids in hand-me-downs, you know, that make them stand out for the wrong reasons. We're not saying you do that on purpose. Um, lots of levels to this one that we don't have time to get into. One of the great essays that Lewis wrote is in The Weight of Glory called The Inner Ring. Anyone read The, uh, read the Inner Ring? Powerful, and Lewis's point there is the inner ring exists for kids, but it also never really leaves us. And Lewis had his own unique experience in boarding school and stuff, so for him it was probably even more ingrained and deeply entrenched. The, uh, the cool crowd is dangerous. Uh, provide oversight of friends and media. Parents may differ exactly on what that looks like. Again, there's lots of different methods and approaches, but the oversight is important. Part of the decision may depend on your child. Kids differ. Uh, if your child is a leader or a follower, may impact on what you, what you allow and how you manage those friendships. Paul tells us that bad company corrupts good morals. Proverbs speak to, speaks to this as well. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise. The companion of fools will suffer harm. Uh, one who has unreliable friends comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. So good friends encourage our children to love and good deeds and righteousness. Uh, they're a valuable part of their spiritual maturity and growth. Media can have a profound impact on how it cultivates our kids. I was reading an essay by uh, Carl Truman recently, and, and he says, um, he said, you know, in the past, people have looked at their educational choice for their kids as the most important decision they're going to make. And he says, that's changed. He says, really, the most important you're gonna, decision you're going to make is about your child and his or her phone. I thought that was, that was interesting. We could flush that out and talk about that, but I thought that was an interesting approach. The phones, uh, the entertainment, the media can be dangerous. So as our kids learn discernment, we want them feeding on things that promote the fruits of the Spirit and godly attitudes. Lots of ways to do that, lots of Christian liberty to do that, but, but things to think about. Uh, how about this one, maybe for some controversy? Don't allow your kids to date until after high school. I can remember when our children were very young, one of the elders at our church said, the only good thing that can happen when middle or high school kids date is nothing. <laughs> I've never forgotten that. In other words, the best case scenario is nothing, all downhill from there. So dating should be designed within a marriage commitment in mind. Casual dating when kids are not ready for that level of commitment can only bring temptations and trials. Emotional instability, friendship problems, physical, sexual temptations, the list goes on. So while it may be inevitable that high school kids may like each other for good reasons, it's not a bad thing, waiting does no harm and only encourages virtues such as self-control and patience. Read and learn from others. It's uh, so helpful to learn from other families whose older kids you see as faithful. Again, we had the luxury of doing that. Some of those families are in this room just gleaning great tips uh, from people, uh, asking questions who have gone before us. So some of that advice was priceful for us, super grateful for it. So whether church or school, reach out to parents, ask what their key strategies or techniques, books, workshops uh, that they have found helpful. Um, Tyler, how am I doing on time? Like how many minutes? Thank you. Okay, I'm going to end with this then. Um, John MacArthur, in his book on parenting, references... An interesting study of sociologists, and I don't, I don't remember, I don't think this was a Christian study necessarily, um, but it was to predict juvenile delinquency, and they found four things 
again, this was, I think, a more of a cultural thing. It wasn't a Christian thing. Found four things that prevent juvenile delinquency. In other words, kids that you know, stay out of trouble. First one, the father's discipline must be firm, fair, and consistent. Second one, the mother must know where her children are and what they're doing at all times and be with them as much as possible. Interesting. Uh, third, the children need to see affection demonstrated between their parents and from their parents to them. And fourth, the family must spend time together as a unit. Those are, I think those are pretty good principles. They're probably already built into a family structure, but it's just a confirmation of God's pattern for marriage and pattern for child raising. So uh, sociology merely confirms what we already know uh, from the scriptures. Uh, let's pray. Father, we uh, are grateful again to you for your blessings, uh, for your goodness to us, for your faithfulness to us, your people. We know that we are imperfect. We know that we need your grace. We need your Holy Spirit to fill us. And we need our brothers and sisters to come alongside us and help us as well. Uh, Lord, as we talk about, uh, continue to talk about uh, training and faithful discipleship and discipline, we pray that uh, we would learn uh, from your word. We pray that you would be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.